Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you are spiritual, should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. You may be seated. Good morning. Throughout this year, Mark has been emphasizing that the Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, man, and what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. Tonight, we're going to follow how John, the Gospel of John, tells a chapter of that story as we'll take a journey with Jesus. I'd like to invite you to come back as we'll be looking at the Gospel of John. In just a moment, we're going to be exploring how within this overarching story, God used Jesus to open a new chapter. We'll also explore what this new chapter means for how we are to live. But first, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your power, your love, and your plan to work through your Son. Thank you, Father, for claiming us as your children through Christ and in accordance with the grace and the forgiveness in Christ, we ask that you cleanse us from all sin. Keep us from the evil one. Strengthen our hearts that we might live each day for you. And Father, we pray for open hearts as we study your message that you might shape our lives, that we can live out the purposes that you have given to us as your people. We ask all these things through the name of your Son. Amen. Earlier this month, you may have breathed the sweet smell of gunpowder as you listened to loud booms in the air as colorful explosions filled the sky. Another 4th of July had arrived. While cookouts and fireworks typically dominate the day, the reason for the celebration is our Declaration of Liberty. Although Britain did not acknowledge the sovereignty of the United States until 1783, 
We remember July 4th, 1776, as the day that the Continental Congress finalized the wording for our Declaration of Independence from Britain, from British laws and taxation. Normally, when there's liberty and people enter into freedom, this is accompanied by a rush of exhilaration and exuberance. Well, the first four chapters of Galatians are going to pound away at a fundamental truth for Christians. Christ has liberated Christians. And Paul is going to conclude that section with these words, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. What does it mean for, for Christians to be free? Free from what? When the American colonies became free, they were released from a very specific thing, British rule. So what has Christ released us from? To understand this well, we need to remember the situation prior to Christ. And so we're going to take a little sidebar for a few minutes and remind ourselves about what existed before Christ. God had offered Israel at Mount Sinai the opportunity to become his special people. At that time, God also gave them a law describing how they must live if they were to experience the blessings that God would provide and how their sins could be atoned by blood. If the people, if Israel would do these things, then she would be justified. She would be right with God. And thus the law with its covenant given at Mount Sinai provided the basis for Israel's relationship with God. But when Jesus died, He provided us a completely new foundation, a new way to have a relationship with God. Not a way of a relationship with God based upon Mount Sinai and the law and the covenant that was given back then. He opened a new chapter in the story of how God would relate with people and what God was doing, what He was doing through His Son. Christ freed everyone from the need to depend upon the works of the law for the relationship with God. Christ, His death also opened up the opportunity for all people to belong to God and have this relationship. No longer were those works of the law required. Instead, we can rely upon Christ for our relationship with God. And it's on account of Christ that we can be declared righteous before Him. And so in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul is bringing these ideas to a conclusion and he asserts that Christ has indeed set us free from the law and that as Christians, we should not go back to relating to God based on the law. Don't go back to that yoke of slavery and, and the, the need for those works of the law. Now Christians can live with a new focus. In Paul's words, how Christians should be living is they should be seeking to be justified in Christ. They look to Christ for their justification. Elsewhere, Paul would put these in, in these words, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is our foundation. The foundation for our relationship with God. 
And so Paul would warn Christians in this Galatian letter. He would warn them against that temptation to go back to the law as a basis for relating to God. He would say, you who are trying to be declared righteous by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. And in fact, within those first four chapters where Paul has been hammering away that Christ has liberated us from the law, he's going to provide what we might call a declaration of independence. Writing with the inside knowledge of an educated Jew, he acknowledges everyone's need for Christ crucified. He puts it in these words. Galatians 2, starting in verse 15. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul will then use himself as an example. An example of this truth of what happens when someone is identified with Christ and the new life that they have in him. Galatians chapter 2, just a few verses later, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside God's grace. Because if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If there was another way, another path, then Christ would not need to die, but he did die so that we can have this grace, this gift that God provides. And so to close the sidebar about what had happened prior, these early chapters, one through four, lead to that statement in chapter five and verse one. That Christ has set us free. He's liberated us from depending on the works of the law as our means for being right with God. And yet, liberty poses dangers. Liberty is dangerous. From the declaration in 1776, from that time forward, it took over a decade for our new nation to hammer out the Constitution Defining the principles that would guide and shape American liberty. How do liberated people live? What's permitted? What's not permitted? Where are they headed? Are there goals within this liberty? Since 2011, we have witnessed the danger that liberty poses. Although the Libyan Revolutionary War ended in 2011... Unrest and uncertainty regarding their future has continued. In 2013, Libya plunged into the worst political and economic crisis since the defeat of Gaddafi's forces in 2011. How are the liberated going to live? Where are they headed? What does liberty mean for their lives? Since Christ crucified has released us from the burden of seeking to be right with God based upon the law, we too encounter the dangers posed by, by freedom and liberty. As those who have been liberated, liberated, how should we live? 
Now that we're free from striving to be righteous and to have this relationship and be just before God, since we're freed from trying to do that through the works of the law, does it matter what we do and how we live? Does freedom in Christ empower my every whim? Without the law's guidance, how does a Christian know the direction to take? What are the goals? How do we move forward as a people who've been freed by Christ? How do we move forward in living as Christians, as God's people? Are there principles that are supposed to be shaping this liberty that we're living with? There's danger in liberty if we don't know the answer to these questions. Paul anticipates our questions, and and he also recognizes the danger that liberty poses. And so he stresses the need for boundaries. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. The interesting word here, word choice by Paul, that word opportunity, it's a military term. It's the the military term for like a beachhead, a base of operations. And what Paul is saying is the flesh and how the flesh thinks, it could see Christian liberty as an opportunity, as a beachhead, as a place to set up a base of operations to entice the Christian into sin. To corrupt that new person that God has made in Christ Jesus. Liberty has boundaries, Paul says. Christian freedom and liberty is not a license to indulge sinful whims. Now, we can easily understand how the flesh thinks. Imagine that you go to your computer and you sit down and you're doing some research. And and as you're out there on the internet doing some research, suddenly one of those little ads pops up. And maybe in the ad is a very, something that's very sensually suggestive. And it beckons to the flesh. This could be fun. This could be pleasurable. You will like this. Click on it. Check it out. I wonder what's there. What more might it show? And and Or maybe the little ad that pops up appeals to greed. That the ad suggests that here, if you follow this link, you will get the answer that will take care of you. All you need is more of what that ad is offering and your life will be fine. It'll be great. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's influence. Maybe it's power. You just need more of this, whatever it is, and you will be okay. And the ad tugs at the greed that can be in the flesh. I just want more of that. And then if this person is a person who's trying to serve God and is a Christian. And they know that that Christ is the basis of their their relationship with God, that it's His righteousness. And that 
my relationship with God is not based on, on my performance of works of the law, but it's based on who He was and what He did and, and that He was a righteous one who died for me, then the flesh can begin to rationalize. Well, my performance then really doesn't matter. And if my performance doesn't matter, then why not click? Why not take that step? Why not give in to greed? Why not give in to lust? Why not give in to whatever else it might be? Paul will claim that such reasoning completely distorts the nature of the Christian under liberty. He's going to say that that, that sort of reasoning distorts the nature of the temptation. Listen to his words. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In a very similar text, Romans 6, he will put it this way. We know that our old man was crucified with him, with Christ, so that the body of sin should no longer dominate us. Well, what does this crucifying of the flesh mean that Christians have experienced? Does this mean that as a Christian, I will no longer be tempted? That suddenly I am shielded from, from all the, the desires of the flesh? No, not at all. But what it does mean, it describes the commitment that we made when we came to Christ. We committed to renouncing sinful ways. We repented of a life that served sin and the flesh. In other words, the flesh does not get a vote in how I'm going to live. Because we're done with that. We've committed ourselves to God and to living His way. Well, it also describes something else. It describes God's work in our life to remake us into new spiritual beings. When we're crucified with Christ, God is at work making us new, giving us new life, making us, transforming us into His people. Paul will introspectively assert these things about himself Earlier in this letter in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. That flesh is gone. And it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So what does being crucified with Christ mean? Well, on the one hand, we make that decision. I am repenting and I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to serve Christ. And in the second, when we're crucified with Christ, we crucify the flesh. God takes us and remakes us into new people. It raises us up into a new life. And so what this means for the Christian life is we do not condone succumbing to sin. We don't make excuses for sinful behavior. Well, you know, every Christian has some vice. No, we have renounced it. We don't make excuses. We have determined that we are going to live for God and put sin behind. There's one truth that what Paul is writing about we can learn about Christian freedom. And the first truth that we can learn is that Christian freedom does not provide a base of operations for the flesh to exploit to sin. Now that tells us what's off limits under Christian liberty. But that's not particularly helpful because where are Christians supposed to be headed? What are we supposed to be doing? 
And so in, in Galatians chapters 5 and 6, Paul is going to talk about how to successfully live within this Christian liberty. And, and one of the first things he does is say, there are certain things that are off limits. You've been crucified with Christ, so these things are off limits. But he also is going to provide two principles, two positive principles about where Christians should be headed. And the first of those is to serve others in love. How do you live as a Christian? You serve others in love. That describes the goal. That describes the behavior. That describes the motivation. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh, but through love serve one another. How ironic. Christ sets us free, and the first thing we're told to do is become enslaved. But these are two different realms. Christ sets us free in the area of justification. He sets us free from the need to depend on the works of the law to be right with God. And so we can depend on Christ. And then in terms of lifestyle, he says, now, how do you live in this freedom that Christ brings? How do you live as God's people? You become enslaved to loving others. This word that is translated serve in most of our translations. It's a politically correct. It's a watered down word. If you want to, if you want to translate it accurately, it is through love be enslaved. This is not mere like, like a waiter serving at the restaurant. This is the language of being a slave. And Christians are to be a slave. What's my duty? What am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be loving others. Enslaved to loving people. In Christ Jesus, Paul would write just a few verses earlier, what matters is faith working through love. Here at Mac, we've got, I don't know exactly how many ministries, I think it's around 40. Why do we have these ministries? All of them are opportunities to bless people. To help. Here are just a few examples that illustrate how we can be devoted to seeking the well-being of others. We have a moving ministry. And from time to time, we have a brother or a sister. And we can serve that brother or sister in love by helping them move their things to a new residence. Some of our youth just recently participated in work camp. This year, the theme at work camp revolved around Philippians chapter 2 and, and learning how Christ's selfless way of living and how His love and caused Him to, to serve the way that He did. And our youth, going through devotionals focused on this, were then encouraged to go out and to serve others in love. This spring, mission campaigns headed off to Honduras and Taiwan and their purpose and the activity is to bless the lives of, of others. And they were doing this in various different ways. And also with some campaigns, there is the opportunity to serve those who are working by financially providing and assisting them to be engaged in that work. But it's not just the formalized ministries where we can serve one another in love. There are so many ways. Sometimes... Someone needs just a helping hand. A listening ear. 
someone, a brother or sister, needs an encouraging word. We can serve and, and, and love someone by cooking a meal, by giving the gift of time or the gift of friendship. Sometimes loving a brother or a sister or someone else involves providing financial resources because they are in need. How can we love God if, if we will not show love to one another? Sometimes it's sharing a message from God's Word. Paul will offer a couple examples within this text in which he's talking about how to live within liberty and, and to love. He says, brothers, if a, if a person is discovered in some, some sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. Well, what's needed if, if someone has gotten off track? What do they need? What they need? A friend a Christian brother or sister, to come and help them get back on track. Now, what do you describe that? What motivates that? It's love. It's seeking their well-being. If someone is off track, track to get back on where they need to be and where they need to be headed, that's love. He says, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What's needed when someone has is weighed down by something really heavy? They need someone to come alongside and Help pick that up and help them along the journey. What is it that motivates a person to do that? Well, what needs to motivate a person to do that is love. I'm going to help you, brother. I'm going to help you, sister, as we walk together and serve Christ. Before he died on that last night, Jesus told his disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In, in 1 John, John would write that Jesus had a commandment that we are to love one another. When it comes to what shapes how Christians live, the focus needs to be riveted upon how can Christ use me to bless others? What's the goal? What guides me? It's love. In fact, Paul will make this point he goes back to the law. Now, the law is not the basis for our relationship with Christ, but the law did point people in the right direction of who God wanted them to be. God has not changed. Who He wants His people to be has not changed. And so Paul reminds us, for the whole law can be summed up in a single commandment. Namely, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And this brings us to a second truth about Christian liberty. When Christians know that they are to serve others in love, then they know how to live in Christian liberty. What they need to be doing is seeking ways to be a blessing to one another. So then, Paul will conclude, whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who belong to the family of faith. How does the Christian live under liberty? Well, the first thing, We've been crucified. We've crucified the flesh. So liberty does not provide us an excuse to sin. Second, I know where I'm supposed to be headed. I'm, I'm supposed to be serving others in love. But Paul will provide another principle, another positive principle to guide us on how to live with the freedom that's in Christ. He counsels us to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. There's an old Cherokee legend about a grandfather who wanted to teach his grandson how to live. 
And the grandfather told his grandson, there is this terrible fight within me. I have two wolves that are fighting at each other within me. One wolf is, is evil and wants me to do wrong. The other wolf is good and is wanting me to do what is right. The grandson looked at his grandfather and, and asked, which wolf is going to win? The grandfather replied, the one you feed. The one you feed. Paul will say something very similar in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God will not be made a fool. For a person will reap what he sows because the person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But he who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. You're going to reap back where you're investing, where you're sowing, what you're feeding, where you are pursuing life. And Paul will give a promise within this section, chapters 5 and 6, a promise, a wonderful promise about how to live the Christian life. He says that if we will live by the Spirit, that we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Well, this raises several questions. The first is, how can I know this is true? If I commit myself to living by the Spirit, how do I know that I will not be fulfilling the things of the flesh? Why is this promise true? And his answer is that the goals of the Spirit and the goals of the flesh are mutually exclusive. In his words, for the flesh has desires that are opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other. It is as if the Spirit is trying to pull me this way and the flesh is trying to pull me that way. And if I am doing the things of the Spirit, then I'm not going to be engaged in going in that direction. And Paul draws this to its logical conclusion. He wants to encourage us that if we will live by the Spirit and focus on these things and live this way, we will not be able to go in the ways of the flesh. And so he says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality. Or rather, I got ahead of myself. For these, for these, the ways of the Spirit and the ways of the flesh, they are in opposition to each other so that you cannot do what you want. But can this be easy? How do we know what belongs to the ways of the Spirit and the ways of the flesh? Without a, a long list of laws dictating every situation, every step I need to take, how do I know if something belongs over here or belongs over there? How do I know what to pursue? Paul reassures us there is no confusion on the ways of the Spirit and the flesh and how we need to live by the Spirit. Now, the ways of the works... The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, carousing, and similar things. I'm warning you as I warned you before. 
Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But in contrast to these, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's nothing that says don't do this. That is the way that we are to live. Well, as we look at this message in Galatians that Paul gives us, what can we take away for living every day? There are many lessons, but here are a few that we've looked at this morning. As people who belong to Christ, we've been freed from relating to God on the basis of the law. Rather, we're declared righteous on account of Christ. He is the basis of our relationship. And He has provided liberty. And how do we live in this liberty that He brings, this freedom? Well, the first thing is, we've crucified the flesh when we came to Christ, so we don't allow this liberty to provide a base of operations for the flesh to start sinning. Secondly, we have a lifestyle, and, and this lifestyle is to be one of love. That's where we're headed. That's how we live. And third, we are to navigate the daily decisions by, by identifying, is this something of the flesh or is this something of the Spirit? And we starve the flesh and, and feed the Spirit. And, and this is not difficult because of the ways of the flesh are obvious and the fruit of the Spirit is clear. It, it's, it's opposed to the ways of the flesh. I'd like to encourage all of us to seek God's will and to drive her closer to Him. God has revealed what He wants to do in in each one of our lives. He wants to include each of us within His master plan to bring us to Him. But He's also given us free will. And that enables us to to delay, to put off, to reject. Many of us have already accepted His offer. But for those who have not yet accepted what Christ has made available, God is asking you to be crucified with His Son. That He might raise you up to a new life. A life that He makes possible through Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, this transformation is described. God wants us to renounce sinful ways, to trust in His Son and what His Son has accomplished for us in His death, and to be crucified, identified with Christ. And in the burial of baptism, all of this comes together, that God might work in our lives, raising us up to the new life that's in Christ Jesus. There is no reason to put off a single day more what is most important in this life. In 100 years, only one thing is going to matter for anyone in this room. And that is what was our relationship with Christ. If if it describes you, the desire to put on Christ, that's your desire this morning. You have that opportunity today at this time to come and make that known. Or if you have a prayer request, you can bring that as well while we stand and sing.
Let us be faithful, 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 Lord. Let us be faithful, faithful, Lord. Though 